you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, the conclusion of a series that uh, was initially intended for December 20th, but God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty has brought us to this point to conclude it this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the words to Ruth chapter 4, to the whole chapter, are provided for you in your bulletin. Uh, God's Word is central to every aspect of our life together as a church, including the, the sitting under the preaching of His Word. And so I encourage you, whether it be your Bible or whether it be the bulletin, or whether it be an app on your phone, I encourage you to uh, open that up and uh, uh, marinate in the Word of God as we slowly, methodically make our way through it. And in the course of doing so, we will see uh, the mind of God, we will see the, the, the love of God, and we will see the message of God for us today. So Ruth chapter 4. Um, Dave has just prayed, uh, but I'm going to pray just once more and ask God's hand upon us this morning. God, we ask as we open your word that your name would be hallowed through your word, that our hearts would be humbled under your word, that our souls would be hopeful through your word and by your word. And we pray this in Christ's name, Christ, the word made flesh, the one whose coming we celebrate, the one whose coming is of total, complete significance and importance for us at all times and not just at Christmas time. It's in his name we pray. Amen. There are moments when you realize or you see something in God's word that is so remarkable that it alters the way in which you perhaps understand reality. The reality of yourself, the reality of who you are, the reality of who God is. This happened to me. It, it, there, th these experiences happen in our lives uh, as followers of Christ, uh, just as I, I think just as part of our sanctification, as part of our growth as Christians. And one such realization that I had as I grew in my understanding of God's Word happened about nine months ago when I first read the book uh, by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. Many of you have heard me reference this book uh, uh, multiple times. I probably sound like a broken record as I discuss it. Um, in fact, we have, uh, we, I've been giving away copies, and we have four of them left downstairs. They're on the table in the lobby, four copies, free of charge. If you want to grab one, please do. This is a book that is a spiritual classic uh, that uh, will, will still be read, uh, I believe, hundreds of years later, if the Lord has not returned, uh, by saints seeking to know and grow in their Lord all the more. But anyway, that's another point. But Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, and here's what I realized. When we speak of God's love for us, I had subtly thought something like, well, well, sure, we see God's love for us in the cross, and we see God's love for us in the actions that he shows to us in providing for our needs and in the ways in which he cares for us. And all of these things are, are, are true, but what this book does is it doesn't say, look at these actions and see God's love for you, although they're true. But what this book does is it probes deeper into the scriptures to see the very essence of God's heart towards us. To show us that the love of God is something that, that is deeper than even the actions that he takes. But the actions that he takes are born out of a heart that, if you were to cut it open, would bleed in love for us. The resting heartbeat of God is one of love for his people. 
But gentle and lowly does not just show us this. The book of Ruth shows us this. Particularly, we see this in Ruth chapter 4 as God invites us to know the pleasures of his heart set upon us. And to know that this heartbeat of God's love towards his people must be the rhythm to the beat of our own lives. What Ruth 4 shows us this morning is that God's loving kindness beckons us to awe-filled wonder as we watch him faithfully accomplish his redemptive purposes for us. Let me say that again. Ruth 4 shows us that God's loving kindness beckons us to awe-filled wonder as we watch him faithfully accomplish his redemptive purposes for us. Let me just ask as we get to the outset, when last did you stand in awe before God? When last was your heart totally at peace before God? At peace with your circumstances in life? At peace with the hand that you feel He has dealt you? This is something that we struggle with, right? Ruth 4 beckons us to see the heart of God. We're going to make our way through this whole chapter. We're going to make our way through it in four parts. We're going to see Boaz's dramatic redemption of Ruth. We're going to see Bethlehem's blessing of Ruth and Boaz. We're going to see Naomi's beautiful grandson. And then we're going to see God's astonishing work and purposes behind it. So think of it like this. Boaz's redemption. Bethlehem's blessing. Naomi's grandson what it all means for us. So this is the intense conclusion of the whole book of Ruth. The first three chapters have found Ruth, who was a Moabite, uh, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, who they were, uh, they, they traveled, they, they once lived in Moab, and they were traveling back to Bethlehem, uh, uh, knowing intense, deep sorrow. Yet they settled back in Bethlehem because they had come there because, uh, because a famine had ended. And Ruth begins working in these fields to, to try to provide for her mother-in-law and herself. And this begins this, this, this kind of, kind of uh, 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 romantic dance that the author of Ruth wants us to see with this landowner Boaz. And, and is, is Boaz falling in love with Ruth? Is Ruth falling in love with uh, Boaz? Is Naomi, her mother-in-law, trying to be a puppet master and orchestrate it all. And, but it's left us with questions or left us things that we must see. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, has, has previously died right way at the beginning of the book. What is to come of, uh, of, of, of Naomi's family and their heritage? Uh, chapter 3 of Ruth ends with Ruth uh, and Boaz discussing marriage, but Boaz tells Ruth that there is a man who, uh, in, in accordance with the ancient Israelite customs of the day, who is closer in, in uh, for lack of a better term, priority in, in regards to having the legal right to marry Ruth. And so what's going to come of this man? Is he going to be the monkey wrench in all of it? So Ruth 3 ends with kind of two major questions that are still unanswered. Will Boaz and Ruth get married? And what will come of Naomi, this woman who has come back to Bethlehem, bitter at all that the Lord has brought about in her life? So what will happen with Boaz and Ruth? Will the marriage come? And what will happen with Naomi? Will her bitterness subside? Well, look at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 and 2. The chapter 3 ends Boaz resolving to go resolve the matter uh, of what will come of this other redeemer 
to, to, to set it right. What will happen? Will Ruth and this other man get married? Will he, will he take claim of being able to marry Ruth? Or will he give up this right and Boaz be able to marry her? Boaz is leading the charge and getting this resolved. So verse 1 begins, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of, of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now, quick pause. We're going to have a few of these as we travel across the whole book of Ruth. Uh, but the gate, you know, so you see them where, where Boaz had gone up to the gate. The gate not only served as a security apparatus for Bethlehem with a wall around it and gates that people came in and out of, but it also served as like the administrative and judicial hub or, 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 or heart of activity in the city. So Boaz is bringing all these parties together, the lawyers, the judges, uh, this other kinsman redeemer, uh, where Boaz refers to him as friend, uh, there where he says, turn aside friend, uh, that, that really means, the language he used there, it doesn't quite come out in the English so clearly, but it, but it means to highlight this man's anonymity. We never get his name in the story. His anonymity, his insignificance. Literally, you could translate it as uh, Mr. So-and-so, like the guy who you can't remember. You're telling a story about him later on, and you can't remember what his name was. So Boaz grabs Mr. So-and-so and all the lawyers and everyone and brings them into this conference room at the gate and says, okay, let's work through the matter of the inheritance of Elimelech's land. And so we dive back into verse 3. So Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our Redeemer, Elimelech, or to our relative Elimelech, excuse me. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And we pause here and we say, wait, 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 wait. This, this isn't good. This, this disrupts the plan. If he gets the land, Ruth is tied to the land, he will get Ruth. Why hasn't Boaz mentioned Ruth? In fact, Stephen, what's the deal with the connection between the land and Ruth? That sounds really old-fashioned. Like the land is the prize and the woman is just the possession. Well, let's look and see what Boaz has going on here. But, but, but before we look and see at it, we have to understand that, uh, transport ourselves back to this day and age, land ownership and transactions in ancient Israel uh, are, are not as they are today. In ancient Israel, in the promised land, land was apportioned out to families or apportioned out to clans. So when they took occupancy of, of, of the promised land, they apportioned it out to families and different tribes of Israel. So when Mr. So-and-so hears that there is no one to inherit Elimelech's land, Elimelech who had died, and, and Boaz says, hey, do you want to add this land to your portfolio? He says, sure, free land to me. Kind of like if you found out a, a great uncle passed away that you had no clue existed and a lawyer calls you up one day and says, would you like all of his property? Yeah, sounds good. I'll take it. Well, so that's what's going on with this man. Um, and we see verse 5, Boaz springs the trap on him though. And he says in verse 5, he says, well, okay, if you're going to take this land, there's one more thing. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Of course, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. So the, the issue there in the ancient days in Israel was if you take possession of the land then, and you marry the, the, the widow of, the, of, the, of a person who died, then you have a responsibility to try to perpetuate uh, uh, the family line. 
And so really, the children that you have with this woman whom you have married, now uh, they become heirs to all that you have. So this man is potentially losing the inheritance that he already has because he started having children with Ruth. So Boaz has sprung the trap. It's like he basically says, oh yeah, one, they're, they're discussing this in this conference room with all these lawyers present. And he says, oh, one more thing I meant to tell you. There, um, there's a Moabite widow who's married into Elimelech's family. And so it's, it, for you to take the land, you're going to have to marry her, start a family, and eventually those children are, are going to inherit everything you have now. It, it's, it, I've heard this described before as if someone was selling a house. And over the terms of the sale with the potential buyer, they said, oh yeah, just, just small matter, just one more thing we need to alert you of. Uh, here's the house, here's what it costs, but oh, just one condition, you have to marry the previous owner. Is that, is that too much? But look at this guy. So, so put yourself in the name of, or in the shoes of Mr. So-and-so. And look at his, frankly, understandable reaction in verse 6. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he says, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not marrying her. You keep the land. I'm happy with my current portfolio. But here's what the author of Ruth is broadcasting in bright, flashing lights for us to see here. What he's broadcasting for us is that it is possible to be so protective of the things that you think will bring you security that you fail to take hold of the blessing of a life submitted to God. This man wasn't just doing the financially uh, advantageous thing. He was acting in disobedience to God's word. Remember, he was a kinsman redeemer who was entrusted with the responsibility of redeeming and providing a home and a heritage to this woman, Ruth, to her mother-in-law, Naomi. But to Mr. So-and-so, the safeties of this life were greater than the pleasures of God's loving kindness towards him. But lest we saunter around this passage with spiritual pride, hang on, and we're going to do a diagnostic test on our own hearts as well as we read this. The question we must ask ourselves is, in the courtroom of our own souls, will we trust God with every aspect of our lives, or will we cling to that which is comfortable and safe for us? Ruth forces us to answer this question before it lets us off the stand. So consider the diagnostic test on our hearts. How First, how precisely, just two, two, two questions I thought of as I was working through this. First, how preciously do you protect your own reputation? Are there aspects of the Christian faith that are not palatable to those around you whose opinion you highly cherish? So you give yourself to silence when the gospel must lovingly be shared. Or how closely, secondly, how closely do you orient your life around your own plans or your dream for yourselves or for your family? Do you have carefully manicured plans for your work or your business success that you want God's blessing upon, but he doesn't have the right to exercise his authority over if it means a turn in a direction that you are not comfortable with? Do you have dreams for your kids or hopes that you wish to see them accomplish? But are these plans prestige and safety and success? Or are they life in the heart of God's will for them, whatever that may be? One thing the author of Ruth is showing us here in chapter 4 is that Mr. So-and-so, prizing that which he held dear over a life in submitted obedience to God is not near as uncommon as we would want it to think. We all look at this guy and think, oh, I wouldn't be like that guy. 
But he's holding up for us the fact that we can very much be like that man. In fact, at the beginning of the book of Ruth, we met two women, Orpah and Ruth, who are faced with the question of will they return to Moab or will they journey to Bethlehem and trust the God of Israel? And now at the conclusion of the book, we have two men, this Mr. So-and-so, this unnamed Redeemer, and Boaz, who face the same question. Will they trust the God of Israel or will they refuse to let go of that which they know and find to be safe? The whole, of the, call of, the whole call of the book of Ruth, in one sense, is a call of obedience and trust in God, even when he calls us to an uncomfortable obedience. Mr. So-and-so, back again in verse 6, feels the angst of this obedience to God. What that means for uncomfortable changes and loss of inheritance and possessions and security. And he says to himself in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Can I show you something really fascinating in verse 4? I want you to take five seconds where I'm going to be silent and make a quick cursory glance over the chapter 4 and just see all the times various names are mentioned in the book. You don't have to know who they are, but just take five seconds and just... Cursory glance, real quick, just observe all the names mentioned. Particularly near the end of the chapter. There are 19 different individuals mentioned by name in Ruth 4. Various people from Israel's past, some long dead for centuries some who are yet to be born. And amidst all of these, there's this prolonged reference to this unnamed Mr. So-and-so who valued his inheritance over doing what was right in obedience to God's word. This is not an accident. What we see here is this man in clinging closely to his inheritance let go of eternal significance. Let go of a legacy that brought glory to God. If you're still wrapping your mind, maybe even your heart around the Bible, what it means for you, what it calls you to see about yourself and about Christ, I encourage you to look at these individuals in this story and listen to their invitation to you to stop dipping your toes in the water of the Christian faith, but to come and dive in and find living water. Okay, so Mr. So-and-so has, redeemed, has, has passed on marrying Ruth. Boaz has cleared the big hurdle, the one redeemer who's ahead of him in line. Now look at how this proceeds, and particularly how the people of Bethlehem respond to this pending marriage. We see Bethlehem's fascinating blessing, verses 7 to 12. First, we see a verses 7 to 10 are kind of a parenthetical note by our author intended to give us a brief explanation of how this kind of legal transaction happened back in the day. Follow along. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and to Malon. 
Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Strange way of signing a contract. Taking off your shoe, exchanging shoes with somebody. You know, you're walking home. You know that feeling when you've got like one shoe on and one shoe off, or you're walking around the house with one sock on, and you're kind of moseying around. I guess, you know, somebody's walking down the street that day and it's like, hey, that guy signed a deal on a new piece of property today. You know, I don't know how that worked. But anyway, the legal arrangements have been made. Boaz has secured the marriage certificate for Ruth. And now listen to this beautiful yet fascinating blessing that these witnesses who are gathered in this conference room pronounce upon this marriage, and particularly on Ruth in verses 11 to 12. You'll hear a few names mentioned here. They said, then all the people who were gathered at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So what do these references to Rachel and Leah and later to Perez and Tamar and Judah mean? We know they're significant, but how? What are these townspeople getting at by mentioning them in this blessing for Ruth and Boaz? Well, in one sense, they seek to help us to encourage Boaz in his marrying of Ruth. But they also scream out to us, the reader, of the significance of what is going on. Rachel and Leah, if you're familiar back in Genesis, they were the uh, mothers of the sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. So these well-wishers of Ruth and Boaz are saying, may Ruth be in accord with these matriarchs who built the house of Israel. May the family line of Israel increase and expand and stretch into centuries forward through Ruth. And you have the reference to Perez, who was born from Tamar and Judah. Any of you remember the account of Tamar and Judah from Genesis 38? We're not going to get into it today with great detail, but if you want to make note of it and go look at it later, it'll help your understanding of what's going on here in unique ways. But big picture, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Yes, they had a son together, father-in-law and daughter-in-law. It's weird, it's icky, it was sinful. Tamar was married to Judah's son, But he died, so no one else would continue the family line with Tamar. And so one day, Tamar dressed herself up like a prostitute and met Judah outside of town. And so they had a relationship, and Perez was conceived. And for as morally distasteful and unspeakably tragic this relationship was, in his providence, God used this union and the child that would come from it to continue the family line of Israel. That is what we're supposed to see here. So when the elders of the people of Bethlehem uh, pronounce in Ruth 4.11 this blessing, they're saying in one sense, may Ruth the Moabite, this woman from the other side of the tracks who has been viewed distastefully, may she be a means through which God actually continues to provide his grace for his people. Listen to how the Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid uh, describes this reference to Tamar in her connection to Ruth. Listen to this. Like Ruth, she too was an outsider to God's covenant people who married into the family under doubtful circumstances. She too lost her husband and had no child. Both Ruth and Tamar dressed themselves up in pursuit of a child and a future. Here, though, the similarity ends. Ruth revealed her identity to Boaz and received a child legitimately through marriage, whereas Tamar concealed her identity and deceived Judah in order to receive a child outside of marriage. 
Tamar pretended to be a prostitute in order to trap her father-in-law Judah into sleeping with her so that she might have a child. The end result of both unions, legitimate and illegitimate, was children who in the providence of God had an important part to play in God's plan. Do you remember what Ruth 4 holds up for us to see? God's loving kindness beckons us to awe-filled wonder as we watch him faithfully accomplish his redemptive purposes for us. Ruth 4 shows us that you might have never felt loved or valued in your life. And yet God has set his love on his people so firmly that he works through the weeds and the charred ruins of our life's experiences to meet us where we are. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, is the means by which the loving kindness of God envelops into the warmth of his embrace. Regardless of if it is you or someone in your close orbit of relationships, there is nothing about your background that stretches beyond the reach of God's love. There's nothing about your background or your current life situation that says you are unusable or, just, or, 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 or beyond the reach or the scope of God's goodness. Your family history may be one of addiction, abuse, years and years of pain, and only moments and moments of love. But may I urge you to look to the eye, look to your eyes and see the Savior, Jesus Christ, as a Redeemer who has come to you. And nothing, no cost, even his life, can deter him from pursuing you. No hurdles that man creates, no, no obstacles that this world would throw at it can deter the redemptive hand of God from accomplishing its purposes. Must also point out that there's powerful application for us to know that there are absolute diamonds to be mined in the pages of Scripture that show us the wisdom and the work of God as He accomplishes our redemption. The many different stories and books of the Bible all play their own individual instruments which contribute to the symphony of God's glory as revealed in His Word. When we open up our Bibles, we aren't looking for codes to unlock prophecies for today. Rather, we are closely mining these pages to see the sovereign wisdom of God that stretches across centuries throughout peoples from cover to cover to show us His divine goodness displayed for us to behold and adore. These names in here are no accident. The author is saying, see the miraculous, see the wonderful hand of God and behold it and worship Him. Here's what the Bible does towards our lives. We are weakly ambling about in the dark trying to get our bearings, but the Bible is like the rising sun that adds light to, and color and shape to our understanding of both ourselves and our world. The testimony of so many, myself included, is that we thought we knew ourselves, we thought we knew our world, and then as we started to read the Bible, we found that the Bible was actually reading us. Now we had the first question answered, what will happen with Ruth and Boaz? Well, they get married. Let's move on to the second, what comes of Naomi? Remember back in Ruth 1, she was dealt a terribly unfortunate hand early on in the book, the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons, fleeing their homeland in the midst of a famine. Well, let's see Naomi's beautiful grandson in verses 13 to 17. So verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And that's how the love, pause here, that's how the love story concluded. 
You know, it's strange. You would, you would think there'd be more to the love story, right? We don't see him picking out wedding invitations. We don't see Ruth having a, having a wedding shower. We don't see Ruth and Naomi and a couple of her gal pals out at the bridal shop saying yes to the dress. You would think this whole story has been marching towards the dramatic conclusion of this love story coming to an end with Ruth and Boaz exchanging vows together at the church. You would think that would be the end of the story. Well, you would think that, but that's the problem is that's not what the story's about. Ruth and Boaz are just one aspect of a greater story that the author of Ruth is showing us. But don't take my word of it. Read verse 14 and following. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. I want you to note something here. Look at verse 15. The one mentioned is not God, it's not Boaz. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. You would think, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to say about your husband that you're about to marry, or interesting thing to say about God. He is our restorer of life. He is our nourisher in our old age. Well, yes, but the one being mentioned is the baby. She's given birth to him, as it says. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. What we're seeing here is that God has provided for the needs that Naomi and Ruth would be facing as they aged. But more than this, this baby is a testimony of God's faithfulness to these women. Do you remember back in Ruth 1, verses 8 and 9? Naomi in her grief-stricken agony as she's trying to get her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to leave and go back to Moab, saying, I have nothing for you. My sons you married, they're dead. My homeland that we're going to, I got nothing. Go home to your mom. Go home and find a husband. Go home to the land that you grew up in. And in this agony, she says, I can't give you a husband. Even if I had a son today, he would have to grow up and you'd have to wait decades to marry him. But what has happened? God has flipped the script and Ruth has married, not Naomi. And Ruth is the one who has had a son who's going to be a restorer of life to Naomi. Naomi, the one who was bitter because her life had ended, she thought, now finds the unexpected blessing of God on her through her daughter-in-law, Ruth. What Naomi thought she knew of herself and of her world and of her God has been dramatically turned upside down. If you're single, if you are desirous, prayerful to find a spouse, it can be difficult, particularly finding a spouse who is a Christian is its own challenge. Or maybe you as a couple or your children are struggling with infertility. They so desire to give you grandchildren or you desire to have children of your own. Oh, how I pray that God would meet you like he did Naomi with mercy from where you least expect it and when you least expect it. But may I encourage you if this is your case, or if you just find yourself in some other situation where you are waiting 
waiting on the world to change. And you don't think it can. Maybe the message to hang on to, one of them from Ruth 4, is to not underestimate or not box in where the mercy of God might come from. Would you look to Naomi as a model of trusting in the Lord and see the means whereby He might have designs on caring for you in your confused pain, even in ways that you don't expect? Church family, at all times, and especially perhaps in a time such as this, where so many are distanced from us, so many are tuning in via live stream, We have a serious and solemn but joyful responsibility to strive to walk alongside one another, to help one another, to hope in the Lord when our circumstances seem as if they are full of sorrow, full of worry, full of anxiousness, and the only thing our circumstances don't seem to have is much hope. May we consider seriously, take seriously our responsibility to walk alongside one another in encouraging hope in the Lord. Do you remember the end of Ruth 1? When Naomi and Ruth dragged themselves into Bethlehem, and some of the women around town, they dragged themselves kind of haggardly into town, and other women see them come in, and they say, is that Naomi? What has happened to her? And Naomi lashes out at them, says God had dealt bitterly with her, I wonder if it's the same women who, verse 14, if you read it with me, it says, And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. Let's skip to verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Naomi with her grandson Obed. The smile that Naomi had there was a smile that was delighted in the little baby boy. But much more had the faint outline of one who has seen God's unexpected faithfulness. Verse 17, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Of David. Interesting name, Obed. We actually don't have a lot of history about the guy. He's born, and then the line keeps going on. Jesse, David, Obed, we don't know. Did he go conquer kingdoms? Did he do great works? What came of him? Well, we don't know. The baby was born, and we just have to assume he became an average dude who lived his life, and when his time was done, he was done, and strangely, that's the point. Here's where part of the wonder of the book of Ruth comes into focus. What happens with Ruth and Boaz isn't the point. What happens with Naomi isn't the point. What happens with the baby isn't quite the point. They're all part of the point, but they are not alone. The point of the story. The point of Ruth is what it says to you and me about the faithfulness of God to accomplish His purposes towards His people. See this in verse 18 through the end of the book. As we see lastly, God's astonishing work. The book of Ruth was written to show you that God will accomplish His good purposes even through terrible situations. Ruth was written to show you that God's loving kindness towards you cannot be thwarted. 
Ruth was written to show us the love of God does not come and go. Rather, it stretches across time and it reaches to the depths of hell that we might feel, the lo- that we might feel in our life if our world is mired in grief unspeakable and sorrow unmeasurable. The book of Ruth shows us that God's hand can reach into those gaps. And it shows us this through an odd ending. Follow along as I read verses 18 to 22 now. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Why does the author of Ruth conclude with David? The guy who was Obed's grandson. King David of Israel, his great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabite. This brief genealogy beginning not uh, accidentally with Perez, Tamar's son, and ending with David, this this genealogy was written to show you and me, the reader, When you go generations beyond, everybody else in the story is dead. And now the author is saying at the very end, this is for you to see. And what he wants us to see is that God is 100% resolved to accomplish his redemptive purposes and nothing will stop him. The King David that you, the people of Israel, uh, celebrate and look to as a sign of God's covenant faithfulness to you, God has brought him through the most unexpected means. So the author ends the book of Ruth by catapulting us beyond Obed and even unbeknownst to him to another birth in Bethlehem that would come centuries later. The conclusion of Ruth takes us to a birth that was the very love of God made flesh, Jesus Christ himself. In Jesus Christ we find a welcome embrace towards outsiders who do not know God. But they come to know God through Christ. In Christ, the Moabitess, The one like Ruth is welcomed into the family of God and becomes part of his family. In Christ, we find security for our souls like Naomi found. Even if that road is paved with tears, Christ is the one who carries us down that road as he is the one who walked the road to Calvary. As our our own life circumstances might feel like a living hell, Christ is the one who endured the hell of the cross that we may know that he is with us, and that he has atoned for our sins, and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. In Jesus Christ, we find the promise of God's presence with us today in our wanderings, and we find the gladness of his promises fulfilled in an eternity of tomorrows. And in Jesus Christ, we find that we don't talk or read of the love of God as if it is an abstract, different, distant, or lifeless uh, uh, equation or prospect. But we find that with the same enthusiasm with which we see the most beautiful things in this life, we directly experience the unfolding of the heart of God to us, made known to us through Christ and revealed to us in his word. God's loving kindness beckons us to awe-filled wonder as we watch him faithfully accomplish his redemptive purposes. The purpose of the book of Ruth is not to give us a love story that causes us to say awe. The purpose of the book of Ruth is to show us God's resolve to send us a Savior that prompts and provokes us 
towards soul-stirring awe before the love of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we stand before you in gladness and in gratitude because of Christ, your Son, the one who came, born in Bethlehem, after his grandfather, also unexpectedly born in Bethlehem. In these births, you show us your commitment to work your love out in the lives of all who you would bring to yourself. Give my brothers and sisters here who perhaps 2021, they yearn for it to be infused with hope. Give them Christ-shaped, Christ-depth hope. For those who perhaps this love of God as revealed in Christ, it sounds nice, but they worry if they may be unlovable or beyond the reach of your love. Help them to see in the story of Ruth that the ones on whom you set your love, there is no way. It is physically and spiritually impossible for them to be, on the re- be beyond the reach of your love. Rather, wrap them up, tuck them in, consume them with your very love. May it be the pillow upon which they lay their head at night. May it be the thought that beats across their mind as they wake up each morning. And may it be their guide, walking with them each step of every day. The love of God before us, the love of God given to us, the love of God sustaining us, all in Christ Jesus. And it is in him that we pray. Amen.